From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you once again to Open Line here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Uh, glad to be joined by our Thursday host, Father Brian Milady. How are you, Padre? Just fine, thank you, Tom. Very glad to be speaking with you. And you are in South Carolina today, right? North Augusta, right across the river from where they play the Masters, right? Fantastic. But you'll be heading back to home turf very soon, right? Yes, thank the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> it's always great to get back home. Yes, I've been eight weeks away, more or less. So. Wow, that's a long time to be away. So, uh, yeah. Well, we're very glad to have you for the next hour or so. And for all of our listeners who have questions for Father Brian Milady, here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205 271 2985. Of course, you can always send us an email. The address there is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put uh, Thursday in the subject line or Father Brian in the subject line so that we can uh, match the right email with the right person. So today, Father, you're going to be talking a little about the resurrection and the Eucharist, right? Yes, I am. Very good. Uh, the um, Easter time is an excellent time to do this, and if you've been going to Mass of the last week, you know that the discourse in the Bread of Life has been read mm-hmm. from John chapter 6. And the reason is because the resurrection of the body is a necessary and important truth to human perfection. I pointed out in previous programs that Aristotle and Plato certainly knew the soul was immortal, but they had trouble with the body. And if the soul is immortal, according to Aristotle, the body should not die. And we know that death is a punishment for original sin. So the fact is they looked around them and they saw that everybody did die. And this was a strange problem in relationship to the mystery of death, the mystery of evil, and even the problem of why human beings exist to begin with. When Jesus rose from the dead, he gave the answer to that problem because he said, this is what it really is. Now, Christ, as you know, spent 40 days on earth after Easter giving us what's traditionally known as the mystagogical catechesis. In other words, he showed finally the fullness of the thing he come to reveal by inviting people to touch his body and the nail prints and things like that. Then he ascended into heaven. Now, when we reach the Feast of the Ascension, the antiphon for part of the office there says, but he didn't descend to make us orphans because he's still with us. And when he is, is he still with us? 
Well, it's during the celebration of the Mass. What body is it that becomes present on the altar through transubstantiation? It's the body of Jesus that now exists in heaven with all the dimensions of the quantity of that body, like the, the eyes and the ears and the um, fingers and the everything. But it becomes also present equally, substantially. That's what we call a transubstantiation. Everywhere the mass is celebrated in the sacred host. So there are not 10 million bodies of Christ all around the earth in every consecrated host. There's one body of Christ that exists now at the right hand of the Father that becomes equally present in 10 million different places. And this is so that all of us can relate to this body. And of course, when we celebrate the Mass, as you know, this is an old idea, Scott Hahn wrote a book about it, but it's an even older idea. The altar for a time becomes heaven. And we imitate the worship which occurs in the book of Revelation, in the apocalypse, of the adoration of the mystic lamb. The catechism is very beautiful on this. Because you have the 24 elders, which were the... Um, 12 patriarchs and 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. The patriarchs are now replaced, for example, in the Roman canon by the Roman martyrs. You have the all-holy women. You have the four uh, directions, which symbolize all the material things in the earth. You have all the angels, and you have all the martyrs and the saints that cast down their crowns around the glassy sea. And so in the Eucharist, we can participate in this heavenly worship. And this heavenly worship not only transforms us in soul by supporting our need to not only believe in God, to see God, to know God, to love God, but to know the world as God sees it. And of course, when we receive Holy Communion, since the true body of Christ, you know, Ave Verum Corpus, which came from Mary's flesh, mm -hmm. Uh, when we receive Holy Communion, his flesh mingles with ours and also prepares us for our own resurrection from the dead. But it's his risen, ascended body that becomes present there. And it's true, the crucifixion also becomes present. But remember, in an unbloody way, because Christ is continuously offering his life, imitating the one eternal sacrifice the Catholics do not believe, we kill Christ on the altar over and over again. The bloody sacrifice occurred once and for all 2,000 years ago. But that is made present to us so that we with John and with Mary may witness also the crucifixion and what it brought to us, which is the elevation of our mind, the resurrection of our mind on earth, mm -hmm. and the erection of our body after uh, death at the end of time. Beautiful. Wow. So much to unpack there. It really is. And uh, Father, thank you so much for doing that. Uh, we're going to uh, go to the phones in just a few moments. That number again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First, a, uh, a, an, an email or two. Here's one from Henry. 
How do we explain the development of the church's moral theology regarding usury? It seems acceptable now. And maybe, Father, you could unpack what we're talking about using that term, usury. Yeah, well, usury is never acceptable. But it depends on how you define usury. Usury is unjust taking of interest on a loan. Mm -hmm. There's actually a question in St. Thomas where he talks about, well, what would be, we would call in theory today, a kind of nascent or beginning form of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And he says, if you give someone a bag of gold and they use that as guarantee for an investment to reap further um, profit, uh-huh. that they owe you something for having given you that bag of gold in order to place this as the security on the loan, which is basically we consider interest. Interest, sure. Right. So uh, it was partially because of a problem of Aristotle where he maintained that to charge interest on something that was consumed in use was unjust. So if I gave you some food and you ate it, you don't owe me anything more than the food. But the issue of security on loans and things like that Mm. is an issue that comes more in the Middle Ages, although it was probably present in Aristotle's time, in Roman times, in medieval times too. But it, it comes in the Middle Ages Oddly enough, partially, because the monks and the religious orders had international banking. Um, They're the ones that developed the whole idea of a kind of um, loan system, Mm -hmm. which went beyond just barter. Okay. And and so we we haven't changed our teaching on usury. What we've changed is what we mean by usury. You can never still take unjust. 20% on a loan be considered unjust. Mm-hmm. Or if you reach a thing like, you know, Merchant of Venice where you get a pound of flesh. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> no, that's unjust. That's yeah, usurious. Okay. Very good. And it's still condemned, yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for that. And Henry, thanks for sending us that email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm sorry, not ctc. It's openline at ewtn.com. Openline at ewtn.com. In a moment, we'll be talking with Paula in Missouri, listing on Covenant Network. We do have a line or two available for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad to be with you for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. We'll get to those phone lines in just a second here. 
want to tell you about uh, Wings, something wonderful that will hit your email inbox, if you would like that, each and every Thursday, where you can find out about EWTN radio and TV shows, items from our own religious catalog, and so much more. Sign up for Wings by going to EWTN.com. Look for that subscribe button. Again, Wings, EWTN.com. Do check it out. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Paula to lead us off. Paula's in Missouri, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hi, Paula. What's on your mind today? Okay, first I want to say um, that the reason I'm asking this is so that I know if I have to go to confession or not before I go to communion. All right. Um, What is the difference between a venial sin of gluttony and a mortal sin of gluttony? Okay. Oh, okay. Well, that's I can answer that. That's very easy to answer, actually. Most sins of gluttony are venial sins. The only time they become mortal sins is that they involve some lack of charity. So, for example, uh, the frugal gourmet in his cookbook has a story that there was an emperor of China who so prized the taste of a given mushroom that he actually assassinated people to get it. That would be a mortal sin of gluttony. Wow, wow. Yeah. And also, C.S. Lewis has a marvelous meditation on this in uh, the Screwtape Letters because he talks about, says that many people, what they think about is gluttony of excess but they don't think about gluttony of delicacy. And most people don't commit gluttony of excess in the sense that the Romans did, Mm -hmm. you know. But gluttony of delicacy is something we do have a problem with because it's where people make their taste more important than other people. So he gives the example of uh, this woman who in a restaurant gives a scream at a plate that some overworked waitress has brought to her, and she says, oh, take it away. That's far, far too much. And all I want is the teeth's weeds, his bit of crisp toast, and a cup of tea properly boiled. But she says she's never been able to believe anybody today who can do the toast right or the tea right. And he says, meantime, friendships are cooled and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, if charity's involved and you're basically rude and destructive mm. of the people who are cooking for you, then that would be more where we'd better into a mortal sin and gluttony. Okay. I, I hope that helps. Uh, most people, though, gluttony, some sins generally are mortal or venial. Sins of lust are generally mortal, but they become venial because of a person's lack of consent because there's so much emotion about them sometimes, not always. Mm. Sometimes sins of gluttony are normally venial sins, but they can become mortal if they're connected either with impurity, because sometimes they're a doorway to impurity, or uh, where they involve the destructive relationship with another person just to get what you want in mm-hmm. your taste. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, very good. And Paula, thank you so much uh, for your question. We hope that's helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Father Brian Milady. 
888-288-3986. It is Open Line Thursday here on EWTN Radio. Got a very interesting email here from Jared who says, I have heard that when Christ was questioned, he said Elijah had already come. Some interpret this as John the Baptist. Is this what Jesus was referring to? What do you think, Father? Uh, In that context, yes. Okay. In that context, yes. So, very good. That's all I can say about it. I have to have the text in front of me. Understood. Understood. To say further. Sure. Here's one now from Stella. Where do the gifts of the Holy Spirit come from, and how do we know what they are? All right. The gifts of the Holy Spirit come from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I would think so. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and there are seven of them. And they correspond to our intellect and to our will and to our passions. So in the intellect, you have wisdom, science, and understanding. In the will, you have, um, or excuse me, in the intellect that has to do with practical decisions, you have counsel, which takes the place of prudence. Piety takes the place of justice. And then you, for fortitude and temperance, you have fortitude and fear of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit sort of moves you. These are the sanctifying gifts now. You only get them when you have grace, right? Mm-hmm. We receive them in baptism. But we can lose their effect or their action if we commit mortal sin. But when we return to being in the state of grace, the Holy Spirit returns again and he helps to motivate us. Anyway, uh, we uh, receive them so that we can act in a supernatural way, which is even more than virtues. It, uh, the classic uh, analogy for this is in a book called The Sanctifier by an archbishop of New Mexico City in the 1920s. He says that the virtues in the old, were like the men in the old sailing ships who used to, when they became calmed with no wind, they used to get out and they'd row the boat to try to find a wind because otherwise they might starve or, or, or die of thirst. Uh-huh. But when the wind came along, that was like the Holy Spirit. And if they sat there and still tried to row the boat, eventually the ship would pass the by. So then they get in and the Holy Spirit moves them along uh, in a, a godlike fashion. So they come from baptism uh, we all receive them at baptism, but in order for them to operate, of course, we have to be open to receiving their action, which means our free will has mm-hmm. to be involved. Mm-hmm. And if we commit a mortal sin, we lose their effect. But when we return to the state of grace, the Holy Spirit's back. And so he's moving us in a divine way. All right. And uh, we thank you so much uh, for your question, Stella. Uh, Brian just called, and he asks, Father, when is your book on Conrad Bars coming out? <laughs> well, you'll have to ask EWTN. Oh, okay. <laughs> they have told me that the projected publication date is sometime this summer. Okay. So I would imagine July or August. But, All right. Uh, all right. That's all I know, yes. We will be on the lookout for that. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Malady here on EWTN. A couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 
1-800-273-3986. Irina has an interesting question. When people who aren't exposed to the faith sin and ignore God's commandments, will God forgive them due to their ignorance? And when I sin, is it worse for me because I am Catholic and I've been instructed in the faith? Father? Uh, to the answer to the second question, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. But in the answer to the first question, you remember that St. Paul was very clear in Romans that all men fall under sin. And the Jews, he said, have revelation. Of course, we'd be included in that. Mm. But the Gentiles have reason. They have the natural law. And so so far as they know about the natural law, and everybody has the capability to know something about it, it, they can sin against that, against reason. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, uh, they would sin unless it's something that they couldn't possibly know. Mm. Okay. And some people are more uh, obtuse (laughs) (laughs) than others when it comes to knowing deep things like the natural law. Sure. But the natural law is generally open to a lot. I mean, you can think of the problem of abortion in this country. How could so many people be convinced, even people who supposedly receive revelation, the killing a baby is a murder. I mean, I just sit there and I listen to this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I think, what is it that they don't get? It's just mystifying, isn't it? Yes, it really is. Because they have the natural law. Yeah, yeah. And the, the natural right uh, is the foundation of all of our relationships in society. So, might as well. Yeah. Very good, and uh, thanks for your question. Let's go now to Mike in Indiana, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I just was wondering, is after the great schism of 1054, did the Eastern Orthodox ever actually participate in a crusade after that? Okay. A crusade. Yeah. Well, the the crusades actually occurred after that. Right. The first crusade was in 1099, 1098. Um, the Byzantine emperor was the origin of the crusades, but he really didn't send any troops exactly. Yeah. And then when the first crusaders conquered, all unexpectedly, Israel, then he tried to take it over. Hmm. And they never really have participated in any of the famous crusades. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't never forgave us for the sack of Constantinople, which took place during the Fourth Crusade. But remember, that was where we were invited to intervene in a civil war between the emperor and his son, if I recall. So it was more at the behest of the Byzantines that we did that. And then the troops weren't paid. And then because they weren't paid, they did what a lot of troops did in those days. They basically sacked the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I don't quite understand what's behind your question, but I don't believe they ever actively participated themselves in a crusade. Although they often sometimes tried to gain the fruits of it. Okay. Mike, does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, the reason it came up to me is because with everything going on in Eastern Europe, they said, you know, the split, right, the split, part of it is because the Orthodoxy, the, the, 
Catholic, Roman Catholics, as they, they would say, like they were bloodthirsty trying to do this. And then they say that the Eastern Orthodox were smugglers and state traps. I don't really know what state traps mean, but so they're saying it's kind of where these divides come from. And it's been- okay. Okay. That makes sense, Father? Uh, yeah, I never heard of that last term myself or that explanation. Satraps. Uh, uh, oh, satraps. The, that, satraps. Satraps okay. are Persians. Uh-uh, they weren't satraps. Satraps okay. are Persians. Got it. All right. Yeah. Very good. They, Mike. They come from the time of the marathon during the pagan times of ah, Greece and Gotcha. Great. Mike, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, we'll be talking with Joe in Houston. We'll also talk with Mary in Illinois. We have a couple of lines open for your input as well. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, the number is 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Glad you could join us for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, please keep our friends in Mobile in your prayers this week. Archangel Radio celebrating, air, airing actually, their spring pledge drive. It is called Producing Tomorrow's Saints Today. So they are very hard at it there in Mobile, trying to raise funds to keep Archangel Radio on the air. So if you're listening in Mobile or Fairhope or really anywhere, please support your Catholic radio station. Back to it right now. Here is Joe in Houston, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM 1430. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hi, good afternoon. Uh, is reminiscing about an intimate relationship with your wife sinful? Reminiscing about an intimate relationship with your wife, did you say? Yes. Uh, is it sinful? To reminisce about that, would that be the sin of lust as you're recalling uh, something that happened with your wife, perhaps? No, of yeah. course not. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> You're supposed to have an intimate relationship with your wife. Sure. So unless it's uh, unless it's something that, you know, there are some people today, in my opinion, weird moralists, hmm. who claim that you can watch a, a pornographic movie to have sex with your wife. Well, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be a personal act. And what kind of person would want to, you know, uh, receive intimacy that wasn't really meant for them? Yeah. It was meant for whatever you were watching on your screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if it was something like that. It's it, my yes, but it was it would be sinful when it happened. But if it's really affection, and it's really um, you know fantasizing about the marital union, even the sexual part of it. It's supposed to be there. That's that's why you get married. Of course, it's not sinful. Joe, thanks so much for your call. And here's a question now from Carl. Should I let my 16-year-old son decide for himself when he will make his confirmation? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh-uh. No. Uh, I have a lot of trouble with waiting till 16. Sure. I think a lot of people have made up their minds by then. Many of them treat like some of the Jewish children treat, treat bar mitzvah as a time for a party or bat mitzvah. Mm, yeah. 
Also, uh, I think they need the grace of confirmation, fortitude, to get through adolescence with all of its temptations. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if you wanted to leave him free to make his own choice to be confirmed, well, I can see that, but not about when. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Carl, thank you so much for your question. Here now, Tracy. Tracy is in Michigan listening on the great Holy Family Radio. Hey, Tracy, what's on your mind today? Hey, hi. Um, I just had a question about Holy Communion. I have heard um, while listening to YouTube videos that it is a sin to receive Holy Communion in your hand. Uh, No, it's not. Um, This is a problem today. It's basically caused by a lack of devotion to Holy Communion. And there are people who are aware of the fact that communion in the hand was a, I don't know, it was strange the way it was approved because it started in Holland and it kind of spread throughout the church in disobedience to the papacy. Mm. And then uh, people caved into the pressure of allowing it, and in the uh, communion in the hand document, which didn't occur in this country with the bishops until 1977, I think. Mm. I remember when I was ordained, the Bishop of Oakland sent a letter to all of us and said communion isn't to be taken in the hand, and if it isn't to be taken in the hand, it tried, people try to do it, you're to refuse the communion. And for many, many years, it was all to the bishops the Vatican didn't approve it. I don't know what they do now, but for many years you had to tell people just point to the tongue when they came from other countries for mass of the mm. papal mass mm-hmm. or so. Mm-hmm. Now, it's it's been approved by the church, but it's an option. And it was originally an exception to the norm, which was communion on the tongue, but it's uh-huh. still an exception, which is legal, and therefore I wouldn't say it's a sin. However, I will um, modify that a little by the way people do it. I, I'm somewhat aghast at the way people come up to communion, especially with the communion in their hand. When they open their hand and it's filthy, for instance, yeah. or they just sort of take it lackadaisically and put it in their mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, I, I'm not saying you can't do that with communion on the tongue, too. The command on the tongue was an attempt to guarantee reverence. And so uh, um, it, it is a very, very good way to do that. Now, but still, it's not a sin to receive command in the hand. Because the church tolerates it, yes. Very good. Glad we could clear that up for you, Tracy. Thanks so much for your call. It is Open Line um, Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. A couple of lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can probably get your call on today's program. I certainly hope so. 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Henry, Father, who says, since Thomas wasn't with the other apostles when Jesus gave them the power to forgive sin, was he indeed given that authority? Yes, it's very similar to the uh, people who received the, the authority, the 70 elders, mm. 
mm-hmm. with uh, Moses. And remember, there were two that weren't in the camp, mm-hmm. and they received the same authority. So, uh, yes, okay, it is. Uh, he, he received it, too. Yes. Very good. Henry, thanks for your question. Helen wants to know, is purgatory eternal? A purgatory is not eternal. Limbo, however, is eternal. So uh, purgatory will come to an end at the end of time. But a limbo will uh, uh, not because they're eternal conditions. Okay. Appreciate that, Helen. Thanks for your question. Here's one now from Alberto. How could we reconcile evolution with the teaching that death and suffering did not enter the world until sin did? Well, uh, for one thing, in evolution, you have two people, according to the church's teaching, Bias mm-hmm. the Twelfth defined that, mm-hmm. from which the human race comes. And there's certainly nothing contrary to the idea that these people could have been protected by God because that was the nature of death um, uh, and that came from the original sin, that God withdrew his protection from them. And he could have protected them from disease and from animals and all that business. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, too, you have to remember that Genesis, even according to John Paul II, the first two and a half chapters until sin is... Um, explained are what he calls theological prehistory. And he uses the word myth for them, but which he doesn't mean fanciful or made up. What he means is a primitive way of explaining philosophical truth. And I was having a discussion with someone here yesterday about the transmission and nature of original sin. And he kept telling me we're being punished for someone else's sin. I said, no, we're not. Original sin is not a deed. It's a, it's a condition of nature. And so I showed him in the catechism where they quote Thomas Aquinas, who says that all men are as one person in Adam. That's the Adam before the sin. Mm. So this is an attempt to explain what human life ought to be like. We should not experience a painful death of any kind. And then that's distinguished from what human life that we experience every day is like, which is death. And so it's not about what evolution's talking about. The book of Genesis is not a book of science as such. It's a book of metaphysics that goes beyond the physical order and is underneath the scientific um, explanations of things. And so you, it's a very sophisticated book. And, it's, and it's, this is in its literal sense now, not not in a spiritual sense, it's literal sense. Um, the first chapter with the 12 days, of seven days of creation, no serious Catholic scholar has ever maintained that the world was created in seven calendar days. Why not? Well, the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. Yeah. So how could it be a calendar day? Mm-hmm. And when St. Augustine deals with this, he says the evening and morning knowledge Evening and morning mm-hmm. is actually the knowledge of the angels, which they have of creation through themselves and then from God as inspired by God. 
So it's a, a very deep book. And what it's saying is that all of time and all of space is different than the creator. And the creator is at the source of it. And not only the source in a time, but the continuous source of it. Because if he forgot it or decided it shouldn't exist, it would cease to exist. So, um, I, I, for, and the other thing I would say is that evolution is uh, still a theory. Yeah. Sorry. Sure is. <laughs> Appreciate that. And Alberto, thank you so much for your question. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Tom Price here reminding you to check out Vatican Insider with our very own Vaticanista Joan Lewis coming up Saturday, 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. This weekend, Joan continues her interview of Brad Hahn of Solidarity HealthShare after giving us the latest news from the church around the world and in the Vatican. Do check out Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis this weekend, Saturday, 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now for John in Charlotte, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir? John, uh, yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, is, is it, am I on the radio? You are, go right ahead. Okay, all right, yeah, um, I, uh, I came to Catholic faith through uh, through meeting my wife, uh, who was Catholic, and and uh, growing up, I grew up Baptist. I've always been a uh, uh, someone who loved history. When I found Catholic faith, I was like, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've really come home with all the history and the ritual and the symbolism. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've, and I've, I've been remained Catholic for twenty some odd years, and um, I've, I've always been a coin collector. For instance, I was in a coin shop one day, and I picked up a coin that had Constantine the Great on it. Wow. And, uh, and I thought, wow, this is, this is, I mean, this is real stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and that kind of pulled me into biblical coin collecting. And, uh, and then eventually, I, I, and I do, uh, I speak to groups about, and show them my biblical coins and uh, let them hold them. And, and, uh, some of these were in circulation when Christ was on the earth. Uh, but, uh, I eventually became interested in the Shroud of Turing and the, the science and the history behind that. I remain fascinated with it. I did talks to groups on that. Uh, I've, I've also recently delved into the scholarly approach to Jesus and the traditional Jesus, or the uh, historical Jesus, as the scholars call it. Mm-hmm. I'm planning a trip over to uh, Israel and and um, uh, may have an opportunity to participate in some excavations over there. Uh, I guess it's all about a search for truth Although I find that the scholarly and the history approach to the, this historical Jesus seems to be a lot different from the faith approach, and uh, I just wonder what the fathers. Uh, you know, I, I'm in a true. Uh, I'm, I'm in a search for history, uh, for a search for for truth here, and um, like I said, I don't want to go over there and get hung up on the history and lose my faith. Uh, what advice would he have for me? Okay. My advice to you is that the faith of Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history are one and the same thing. And the distinction between the two comes from the philosopher Immanuel Kant in the 19th century and is wrong. There is no such distinction. When the apostles experienced faith, they did so from their common, ordinary, everyday experience of Christ. And uh, when I made my trip to the Holy Land, I was astonished 
and how much physical archaeological their evidence there is for the Jesus of faith. So my advice to you is to not pay attention to whom you call the scholars. I'd love to know which scholars you're talking about. <laughs> there was the Father Crossan, who thought the only inspired gospel was the Gospel of Thomas, which is one page long and isn't even uh, it is heretical. I mean, this the Jesus movement is the source of this historical Christ, and it's it's wrong. And uh, also, a good bit of it comes from German philosophy, and we've seen just how much the Germans have to contribute to us lately, <laughs> yeah. which is more confusion than mm -hmm. clarity. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, I think if you're looking for the Jesus of history, you should realize that it's the same as the Jesus of faith. All right. Very good news there, John. So uh, be not afraid, my friend. Thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Andrew now in Seattle. Hey there, Andrew. What's on your mind today? Hi, gentlemen. I Sometime this week, Monday or Tuesday, Philip asked Christ in the readings, or mentioned he wanted to see the Father, and Christ answered something to the effect of, you've been with me how long and you don't recognize me? And then today, Christ says, you can't know the Father, only, or only the Son knows the Father. Am I missing something between these two? Because they seem to contradict. Okay. Today. Um, Would that be as in uh, today's readings, Andrew? Is that what you're talking I about? I don't yeah. recall that in the Gospel today, or in the first reading. The first reading is about Philip baptizing the Candace eunuch. And the second reading is basically about the bread of life. Uh, what Jesus is referring to there is that since he's the second person of the Trinity, he understands the Father's will fully and embraces it. But when he's talking to the apostles, he's talking about the fact that they don't believe in him because for some, you know, it's very hard. And that even though he's been with them all these years, he told them he's the way, the truth, and the life. But through his human nature, in other words, he's not talking about his divine nature, through his human nature is the way to arrive at him. And they don't seem to have gotten the message, most of them. They won't get it even at the resurrection of the dead. Mm, yeah. um, so it's partially because it's such a difficult thing to understand. And it's also so different from the Messiah that they were looking for. So uh, it's, a, it's a go to us, really, and help to us, because even in our experience of our faith, many of us are sort of walking along the way of Emmaus with Christ, and just as they didn't recognize it when he taught them a scripture lesson. So even the people who are most intimate with him didn't also always understand what he was saying. You know, I've been a teacher and preacher most of my life, and I'm always amused when pastors tell me about our doctrine. Now, bring it down. Bring it down to the lady. Bring it down to the lady. And I'll say, okay, well, you do realize, Father, that uh, the Catholic religion is the revelation of the Blessed Trinity in time. There's only so far you can bring that down. <laughs> and it ceases to be the Catholic religion. Yeah. I mean, it's infinity we're trying to understand, for heaven's sake. And Christ from his infinity, is is trying to uh, embrace humanity precisely so he can die on the cross and save us, which is also a mystery. We'll never understand it totally. 
When Thomas Aquinas examines the nature of Christ, he always asks it under the question of whether something's fitting or not. Now, he can't prove that Jesus is God, but the term fitting means there's more good in this decision on the part of God Mm -hmm. than in any decision we can think of. Okay. Appreciate that. Andrew, thanks so much for your call. Here is Carol now in New Jersey listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hi, Carol. What's on your mind today? Oh, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm a recent convert to Catholicism Mm -hmm. um, in 2019, and I also teach RCIA. I was listening to Dr. David Andrews the other night, and I did hear him talk about original sin and uh, talk about the metaphor of Adam and Eve. Um, And so my question is, right now what we keep for original sin is Adam and Eve. Um, I heard uh, him say that original sin is our brokenness. I heard a little piece of what you were saying as well, Father, about original sin. My question is, what should we be teaching for original sin? Okay. Well, first of all, it's not a metaphor. Adam and Eve are not metaphors. It's not a poetic device. I was very clear about the fact that the term myth means a primitive way of expressing philosophical truth. I was also very clear about the fact that Pius XII defined the fact that the human race had to begin with a one man and one woman in the 50s. I was also trying to be clear about the fact, though, that when we talk about Adam and Eve and their relationship to God— and their relationship to grace, which they were created in, Council of Trent defined that, and their relationship to Eden, for example, which is that they're at peace with the world, and their relationship to each other, we're talking about categories or terms or ideas that underlie everybody as far as our ideal nature is concerned. But sin is not something that is just something that comes from philosophy or is ideal. That's where real history enters because we have experience of original sin. I've always said that the doctrine from which to me there is most evidence is original sin. <laughs> I mean, yeah. all you got to do is open the newspaper and it's there on every page. Sure is. Oh, yes. So uh, what we should be teaching is that Adam and Eve, which represent the whole human race, were originally committed without sin. Had they endured in this condition, which depended on their loving obedience to God, as shown in the commandment, and they had integrity within, because they really liked doing good, mm-hmm. had they endured in that condition, <clears throat> we would be born in the state of grace too. But they didn't, as is evident to us when we look around ourselves. Mm-hmm. And with them, the necessity of dying and a painful death entered the human race. Also, ignorance, weakness, malice, and the fact that we don't have in itself a relationship with God anymore, which depends on grace, unless, of course, we believe in the Messiah. And, of course, the Messiah is promised originally in Genesis 3.15. So God doesn't leave us without hope. But that's the kind of thing we should be teaching about original sin. 
Okay. Appreciate your call there, Carol. Let's go now quickly to Mary, a first-time caller in Overland Park, Texas, uh, Kansas, rather, listening on Ave Maria. Mary, we just have a couple of minutes here. What's on your mind today? Um, I went I went to a Mass in New Jersey over the weekend, and the um, priest said, Hail Mary, in the middle of the Mass. Is that legal? Or uh, Was it during the Prayer of the Faithful or before the, after the homily? Um, I'm not sure exactly where, but it sounds uh, it's possible well, those that are... it's the end of the Prayer of the Faithful. Oh, well, that's fine. It's like another petitionary prayer. You have to say a prayer at the end of the prayer of the faithful anyway. Sure. There you go. So if you wanted to invoke Mary in that as a help to your prayers and to our prayers that we're personally expressing there, there's nothing wrong with that. Mary, thanks so much for your call. Here is Jennifer now driving in Nebraska, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jennifer, about a minute left. What's on your mind today? I'm new to the Catholic faith. Um, we're just recent converts, and I understand we're to look to the saints for guidance as we navigate through life. Um, can you maybe help me understand praying to the saints better? Okay. Oh, well, you're not praying to the saints, all right, first of all. Yeah. You're asking their help in praying to God, and you pick a certain saint's because their struggles are like your struggles or because they have certain ideals. Like I love Thomas Aquinas because he was so intelligent and he was a very good teacher uh, because they're connected to what you do in life. And just like you'd ask help of your friends to do something in the same way you do with the saints. And of course, Mary is the same. You know, uh, I had a friend that was an evangelical asked me one time, he said, What's this Mary bit with you people anyway? (laughs) And so I said, well, you do believe in Holy Scripture, right? He said, yes. And I said, literal interpretation? Yes. Well, in Holy Scripture, it says all generations will call me blessed. And that's all we're doing. Wow. Makes it very clear, doesn't it? Sure does. Right. And, and, And we don't pray to Mary. We pray to our Lord through Mary's help. There you go. Jennifer, hope that's helpful for you. We could not get to Bianca in San Antonio because we flat ran out of time. Bianca, please call us back uh, tomorrow or on the day of your choice. We'll try to get you on and put you up at the head of the line. Father, if we could ask your blessing, please. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. And don't forget, tomorrow at this time, it'll be our very own Vice President for Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, answering your questions of a theological nature. Until then, I'm Tom Price, along with Father Brian Milady, and uh, safe travels for you, Father. I know you got a lot of big, long travel day ahead, so uh, do take care. For everybody else, God bless. See you then. <laughs>